This is Dr. Bob Patton. Welcome to Making Much of His Mission. His mission, of course, is to see many come to Lord Jesus Christ. The Bible says, All have sinned and come short of the glory of God, so we can't be with Jesus Christ. The Bible says further, The wages of sin is death. We are separated from Him and ultimately will go to hell. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. He gives us this as a gift. We can't earn it, but we can receive it. For as many as received him, to them gave he power to become children of God. So as we receive Jesus Christ, he comes into our life, gives us his life, which is eternal life, and allows us to spend eternity with him. That is ultimately his mission. Let us all yield totally to the Lord Jesus Christ and accept him as our personal Savior. And now, the message for today. Welcome to the midterm review of MI-210 Islamic Studies. One of the problems that people often misunderstand is the problems that face Muslims. We have a feeling that all Muslims are rich, uh, they uh, run around in sports cars and have oodles of money because of the uh, oil. That is not true. Muslims. Uh, have to deal with poverty. Uh, in many countries, uh, illiteracy is high, uh, disease is uh, not good, and in many cases uh, they have totalitarian governments, but the governments often have failed. So poverty, illiteracy, uh, disease, failed governments are all things that they face. So they face many problems just like we do. Uh, the culture itself, uh, however, places a great emphasis on uh, the group and group identity and group rights. This goes all the way back to the time that uh, the various tribes and clans were in Arabia pre-Muhammad, when honor and uh, the love of family were of primary importance, and the hero was the guy who would fight and kill, was expert in archery, uh, also in uh, fighting with a sword, and he would bring a booty back and women, and that was what gave honor. The honor, by the way, and the importance extended throughout the entire family, it's an extended family thing. So uh, we are used to thinking of nuclear family. For example, when I thought of my family, I would think primarily of my wife, myself, our four children, and our 18 grandchildren, and now some uh, great-grandchildren coming along. But in their family, that would include my father and mother, their brothers, their sisters, um, all of my cousins, uh, and uh, their cousins, uh, and so forth. So it's a, quite a large number of people. It's very important to bring honor and shame. This is a shame culture. So when I fail, it's not just that I fail, but I bring shame uh, and dishonor to the entire family. And one of the things that that does is if I become a Christian, horror of horrors, this brings shame to the entire family. Uh, and so it's not just me and I do my own thing like we would think here, my decision to make. No, it's a family thing. On the other hand, family will help the same way. It's important to recognize that the customs of the uh, Islamic people 
and the customs of we in uh, the United States are quite different. And you have to learn how you're going to deal with this as in any other culture. Some people say, okay, what I'll do is I will take my culture, ethnocentricity, my old culture, that's what we have. Or other people say, well, I'll become native and jump into the new culture. Well, you can't become native because you cannot remove you, uh, and give yourself a blank slate. You have the traits of your own culture firmly established in you. What you can do is deal with the old cultures and the new cultures in terms of biblical norm. Uh, in terms of these, there are several important things to recognize within the Muslim culture. For example, Muslims place a high value on hospitality of guests. You can think back to the situation where perhaps you're stuck out in the, in the desert and you're kind of rescued by someone. Of course, having hospitality would be extremely important under those circumstances. Well, be that as it may, if that's the reason or another, they place a high value on being very hospitable. Also, uh, it's important to recognize that Muslims are very careful about contact with the opposite sex. The worst of all possible scenarios, other than apostasy from becoming a Christian, would be for your daughter, or horror of horrors, your wife, to become pregnant by someone other than the husband. Uh, for that reason, often they will marry the children, the girls young, they will keep them at home, they will... Uh, be careful not to put them in a situation where they get very educated because then they might become more likely to become immoral and thus they are very sensitive. A woman should uh, not allow another man into her home without the physical presence of her husband and without her husband's express permission as, all, as well. Uh, they give respect to age, uh, quite different from the United States and they give a special respect to males and particularly to the oldest male in the family and to the oldest son. For example, a mother uh, is uh, going to be uh, in charge of the, of the children, but after her especially oldest male son becomes 25, he has responsibility and she must listen to him. You say, well, it doesn't sound like the women have the same status as the man. You are correct. She has only half the inheritance of a man. She, When she testifies in court, it takes two women's testimony to be that of one of a man. She cannot divorce the man, but a man can divorce her. Now, as we look at the life of Muhammad, there are a number of interesting things to mention, and it's very important to understand Muhammad because Muhammad is considered the ideal for the Muslim. This, of course, is automatically going to put a certain amount of stamp on the culture of the time of Muhammad, and thus the 7th century uh, AD Arabian culture becomes, perhaps you could say, unduly important, but very important in the Muslim culture. Uh, Muhammad started off as a reforming prophet. And we'll talk about that in some detail. But he started off uh, by getting visions, uh, seeing that idolatry was bad, uh, certain people were being mistreated, uh, and so he initially went to say there's one God, and uh, 
His name is Allah, the name of the God, and idolatry is bad, and you ought to get rid of it. However, as time went on, he became uh, more and more a warrior, and by the time he went to uh, Medina, he emerged as a warrior prince and a ruler uh, of the people and fused the religion together with the sword uh, as and put the two together, and that's been true ever since. He's been always, among other people, very careful about caring for orphans. Why? Because he himself was an orphan. Uh, he never knew his father. His father died while his mother was pregnant. Then she dies when he's about five. He goes to another relative who uh, also dies, and then he ends up being taken care of by Abu uh, Talib, which I believe was his grandfather uh, or his uncle. How did he support himself initially? Well, after he got his education, uh, which was primarily practical, he claims he could not read. Uh, he went on a number of caravan trips. He supported himself as a professional camel trader. Uh, was he originally an um, evangelist? No. Was he originally a professional preacher? No. Uh, he was a professional pre uh, Tamil trader. Now, how did he get to be the other? Well, he was a camel trader, very effective at age 25, uh, and his a relative of his, apparently still a rather beautiful woman, Khadija, at age 40, actually she proposed to him. And he continued to do well, and by the time he was 40, that's 15 years later, uh, they were independently wealthy. He had uh, six, I've seen one or two people say seven, children by Khadija. Uh, the boys died, and only one of his daughters survived past him, that is Fatima, who married Ali, uh, who was an adopted child of his. Uh, but uh, he had, that was his first wife. After Khadija died, he went then shortly thereafter to Medina and then started accumulating a group of wives, first Sunnah, and then by the time he had finished, another uh, total of 10 wives. So he had a, ten, a total of 11 wives. Uh, it's interesting also that about his wives is that only one of those 11 was a virgin, and that is his favorite, Aisha, who was given to him at age six. She actually brought her uh, dolls and so forth into his harem. Uh, they consummated the marriage sexually at age nine, and uh, I believe that he, uh, she was, I think, at about age 18 when uh, finally, uh, when Muhammad died. Well, Muhammad was about 40 years old, and he went into a cave in the Mount Hira and began to get revelations. And uh, he focused on these revelations. These revelations came through a spirit being. The spirit being identified himself as Gabriel, or Gabriel, the angel. Uh, uh, the main thrust of these was that there is only one true God, that, uh, Tawid, uh, that God is totally apart, he's transcendent, and he has no children, uh, no daughters, no sons, uh, he is one God, and God does not want idolatry. This was a radical change for that 
particular area as idolatry and worship particularly of stones but other things as well was very common among the tribes and in fact they had a special place right in Mecca where he was where his tribe was called the Kaaba and which means the cube and in it sat 360 idols and people from all different clans would come and they would worship their idols there so when he started preaching this not a popular message because it was interfering uh, with their pocketbooks so many rejected him they did not accept him as a true prophet uh, after these revelations uh, and he got into more and more problem with his own tribe which is the Quraysh tribe which was the dominant tribe in Mecca at one point uh, prior to his uh, leaving Mecca uh, he had a trip at night now according to the trip they said he rode on Burak which is sort of between a donkey and a horse with wings uh, huge strides and it transported him to Jerusalem and then from Jerusalem into heaven he went to I believe seven heavens or so he met uh, not only did he meet God but he met Adam uh, Moses uh, Jesus and a whole bunch of other people during that time and made some proper decisions as to what to drink uh, milk rather than wine when offered the opportunity was told to have people worship uh, 50 times in prayer per day and Moses told no that's too many and so finally he got down to five Moses said that's still too many but he's ashamed to go back and ask for any fewer and so according to the the uh, tradition up till today the Muslims worship five times now in modern times many would say that this they would not deny the uh, night vision but they would say for uh, reasons of a number of different reasons that this was a spiritual trip and not a physical trip and indeed physically it would be most difficult to picture this ever occurring they also said that during this time these many uh, people uh, recognized Muhammad as a great prophet he also saw hell and in it he said it was mostly women okay they continued to have problems until things got so tense at one point he had sent uh, a number of his people to uh, Ethiopia that they, they returned when things quieted down a little bit that the the Muslims that were in uh, Mecca numbering about 150 or so fled to Medina or Yathrib same town different name uh, about 280 miles away uh, this is called the Hijrah, and the Hijrah marks the beginning of the Muslim calendar now in Medina they accepted Muhammad initially uh, as a secular ruler or a ruler there was problems between the Muslims in Medina uh, and those who were heathen just like there was in Mecca but uh, the uh, Muslims many began to go to Muhammad's side some went openly and freely others went under fear and he had been in good relationship with the Jews prior to this time but then uh, he felt that uh, they rejected him because they looked at uh, the scriptures and they said this man cannot be a prophet there are too many things that don't uh, fit 
are prophecies of what the Messiah should be, among other things, his family background, uh, not a Jew, and so they rejected him. This created major problems, and the three tribes of the Jews, one by one, were eliminated. Two of them were driven out of town. The third one was actually caught in a situation where they tried to go with the Quraysh, who had come to Medina from Medina, uh, to Medina from Mecca, and uh, then uh, he caught them in this. Uh, he had them as a um, he put them in a situation uh, where he surrounded them and uh, put them under siege. Eventually, they surrendered, and he beheaded about eight hundred of the men and took the women and children hostage and took them as slaves. Later on, uh, after the death of Muhammad, uh, some of his faithful followers became leaders. First one was Abu Bakr. Abu Bakr was an older man, actually older than Muhammad, I believe, and uh, thus he was only in power for two years after, he, after Muhammad's death when he died of natural uh, things. He had participated as uh, one of the very first converts, and he is the one who gave his six-year-old daughter, Aisha, to Muhammad, who was his favorite wife. He was followed uh, by Umar, a very strong man, a very powerful man, a uh, man who was a good ruler, who was assassinated uh, by the Persians, probably a Persian general that he had enslaved at the time. He was followed by Uthman, who was not so popular, who took the Quran, which was consisted of the writings of what Muhammad had said he saw from the, or he heard, I should say, from uh, the mouth of Gabriel, or Gabriel, assembled them as one of the main features of what he had done. He was followed finally by Ali, who was the, <clears throat> as the first Muslim male convert, Khadija was the first convert, his wife, Ali was an adopted son, was the second convert, a very strong fighter also, and he became the fourth successor, the fourth caliph. After the death of Ali, uh, there was a struggle for power uh, between the fellow of who was in charge of the governor of Syria and Ali's uh, sons. Uh, Hassan, his uh, older son, basically abdicated and said, "I don't want to. I don't want anything." That didn't save him. He was apparently killed by poison. But his brother Hussein did fight against the governor, Muayya, and uh, eventually was killed and beheaded. And this brought the Muslim to split between the Sunni and the Shia. The Shia are a smaller group, but they believed that uh, the true successor of Muhammad came from his family. Thus, they rejected the a group of Abu Bakr, Umar, and Ottoman, and said it's Ali, and then it should have been Hussein, and so forth. Uh, the the larger group, which represents nearly 90%, not quite, but almost 90% of all Muslims, the Sunni, said no, the most capable individual, and so Abu Bakr and then Umar and Ottoman were correct. Once again, talking about these men, uh, Abu Bakr, actually his claim to fame was after he was the number one caliph, was that uh, 
by tradition, a lot of the uh, tribes were used to, after the death of a leader, they would dissolve any contracts they had. So when Muhammad died unexpectedly at age 62, many of the tribes said, hey, we're not Muslim anymore. Well, Abu Bakr said, your contract is with Allah. It is not with Muhammad or anybody else. They fought some things called the Rid of Wars, and the Rid of Wars allowed them to consolidate uh, the uh, whole Arabian trot, uh, Peninsula, and that was Abu Bakr's main claim to fame. Umar greatly expanded the area of uh, the Muslim control into the area of Palestine, uh, into Egypt, and then eventually into Persia, and that was where he was killed. And as I mentioned before, Uthman did continue the expansion to a certain extent, but his main claim to fame is, he said, now people are dying who had memorized the Quran, who remembered it, and uh, if we don't have a written record, we're going to lose it. So he assembled all the various writings, picked out the one that is the closest to what he thought was right, which if a question was in the Quraysh dialect, and then he burned all the other copies. So there was only one copy. So there's no way to cross-check to see what may have been a correct copy. Later on, this created some problems. For example, Aisha said that a certain surah had, I believe, uh, 200 or so verses, and the one that's in the Quran had 73 verses. Uh, some of them claimed that deliberately uh, Uthman had pulled out some of the Quran uh, to um, for various reasons, and so that it was a little bit shortened. When we think of um, Islam, we think of Saudi Arabia, we think of the Middle East, but in fact, the majority of Muslims really live in the area of Asia. Uh, the largest group is actually in Indonesia. And in Suriname, the, the vast majority of the uh, Muslims there are actually from Indonesia. We call them Javanese, meaning they came from the, the island, the largest island, the most populous island in Indonesia, that is Java. But they are also present in uh, Pakistan and Bangladesh in very large numbers, and in India itself, because India has such a huge population, although the dominant figure in India is Muslim, I'm pardon, is Hindu, and also in Afghanistan and the other Stans. So the largest group of Muslims is not in Saudi Arabia, it is not in Egypt, in fact, it actually is in Indonesia. What about the status of uh, Christians after they were captured? Well, the Muslims, beginning with a treaty that uh, was made, uh, I believe if I'm pronouncing it correctly, Hayadab, uh, was made by Muhammad when he captured some of the Jews, and he'd already killed a lot of Jews. Remember, he had beheaded 800 of them, basically the entire tribe of one of the tribes in, in Medina. The Jews came to him and said, look, we're better farmers than you are. Why don't you let us farm and give you a big percentage of our winning rather than just kill us off? And so he did. It may have been as high as 50% at that point, but that was the beginning of what they called the jizya tax. And so Muhammad and his followers, started uh, the first caliphs, started with what they called the dhimmi status, D-H-I-M-M-I. -M -M -I. 
This was an inferior status of the so-called protective people. It was good for Christians, for uh, Jews, and also for Zoroastrians, who were quite prominent in Persia, is now Iran. Uh, these peoples, that is the Jews, the Christians, and the Zoroastrians, had written materials. At first, the materials of Islam was by oral tradition. It was much later that they had things written in Arabic. And so they called them the people of the book. They were allowed to uh, survive, but they had to pay a high tax, maybe three, four, or more times what the usual Muslim would pay. Uh, they had to have everything inferior. Their houses couldn't be as big or high. When they uh, rode, of course, now you don't ride on horses. They couldn't ride on horses. They rode on mules. They couldn't have. They couldn't ride saddleback. If a Muslim is coming and uh, in your direction, you yield to him. If he's walking, you step out of the way. Uh, they were limited in not being able to hold public office freely. Their churches, while they were allowed to remain, were could not be repaired, and so gradually they fell into disrepair, and they could not build new churches. They called them protected people because they said, we are protecting you, you don't have to fight. Well, they didn't want them to fight, actually. Uh, it was possible for someone uh, who was a, in a dhimmi status to convert to Muslim, but it was not possible for Muslims to convert to dhimmi status, that is, a Muslim could not become a Christian or a Jew. They even made them wear distinctive uh, clothing, so you could tell them apart. They might have them wear a bell. Sometimes even when they went into the public baths, they had to wear these things. Uh, they, their testimony was not accepted against a Muslim. So in every way that is important, they were made inferior. Uh, for instance, a Muslim could take a Christian wife, but a Christian could not marry a Muslim woman. Everything was geared to push Islam in, up front and push them in back. Muslims were very aggressive during the first times, and after the first righteous, four righteous uh, fellows, uh, caliphs, uh, the power shifted to the Umayyad dynasty, which arose out of this governor that we talked about in Syria, and the people continued to advance. Uh, the Muslims advanced, uh, especially along all of North Africa, took over uh, Spain, where they were there as long as 800 years, called Moors, M-O-O-R-S, and advanced as far as southern France, where they were stopped by Charles Martel in 732. It's easy to remember the date uh, is exactly 100 years after the death of Muhammad at age 62 in 632 AD. So they had built a huge empire by that time. They continued to remain uh, in uh, the southwestern Europe, particularly in Spain, where they continued to flourish, especially in a place called Cordoba, uh, and they had a caliphate there for many, many years, and in fact, they were not really displaced until 1492, the same year that uh, Columbus sailed the ocean blue, when uh, the Christians uh, managed to have a Christian king, uh, I think it was Isabella, queen, 
uh, and uh, Fernand, uh, Fernand or so, and then uh, they established themselves as the rulers. But up until that time, they were under the domination of the Muslims. During this time that these things flourished, uh, especially uh, during the replacement from the Umayyad dynasty by the Abbasid dynasty from 750 AD or so all the way to 1250 AD, about 500 years. This was a golden age when uh, Muslim scholars flourished in uh, science and math and astronomy and uh, geography, all of these things. Many of those that flourished in it, however, were really uh, from Jewish background, took Muslim names. For example, that's what I believe is true of Avicenna who was a famous doctor. I believe he used anesthesia and other things. During this time, uh, many of the Muslim areas were more advanced uh, than uh, the uh, Christian areas, which were in the Dark Ages during this period of time. This uh, was comes to a conclusion uh, during the time of the Crusades, started off by Catholic Pope uh, Urban II, uh, partially in a defensive maneuver, and the desire to capture back the Christian lands, uh, which had been for Christ for centuries, uh, including the large areas of Turkey and also uh, the promised land, that is, uh, Palestine and Jerusalem. There are a lot of atrocities uh, committed on both sides. Uh, such people as Richard the Lionheart had led them. We had the tragedy of the Children's Crusade, where many children uh, tried to have a crusade thinking they would be pure. Uh, what happened was most of them were killed uh, or enslaved and sold as slaves. Following uh, the Abbasid uh, dynasty, uh, the more uh, the rather the uh, Muslims from the area of China and the area especially of the stands group of places uh, ruled and then uh, the Mongols began to have power. Uh, the Mughals ended up having power in India, but then we were uh, see the rise of the Ottoman Empire in 1517 AD. This empire was at least as large, probably larger than the Roman Empire both in its size and certainly in its duration. And it lasted all the way till 1917, World War II. And then the Muslims sided with uh, Germany and were sort uh, cellularly defeated by European powers. And the Ottoman Empire was chopped up into pieces and given to European powers, and many of the countries that had been proud of their Muslim heritage now found themselves as colonies dominated by Europe, a situation which created enormous hatred, uh, as you can imagine. And they have been waiting to get free and able to reestablish themselves. There are, uh, well, several things that make a person a true Muslim. Uh, one of them is the Shahada. The Shahada is a statement uh, that there's only one God, his name is Allah, uh, or Allah, and Muhammad is his prophet. If you say this in Arabic, 
precisely as it should be said, with understanding and true belief, you are considered a Muslim. There are several other pillars of the faith. The second pillar of the faith is what is called the Salat. These are ritual prayers that are said primarily to uh, emphasize the greatness and power of Allah. Uh, They are said five times a day. Uh, They are often said in unison. They are memorized prayers uh, with prostrations. You clean yourself before saying that, uh, washing preferably with water, but if water is not available, they say that clean dirt or sand, and you can see how this fits with Arabian culture, uh, can be used to clean yourself. uh, So you clean your uh, face, hands, mouth, nose, uh, arms, feet, before you say your prayers. And the prayers are uh, somewhat uh, complicated. Ideally, uh, you say it in groups, and they say that if you do it in a mosque, it has 25 times the value uh, that it would if you do it alone. Uh, These are five times a day uh, to be said, uh, and the person hears the call of a Muslim, a special person calling out in Arabic, saying, come to prayers, come to uh, success, and then you roll out your mat if you happen not to be in the mosque, and bow down uh, to Allah uh, multiple times. The third thing that is expected is the zakat or the income tax. Uh, The overall income tax is generally about 2.5%, a 40th of your income, although some people will give more and there may be certain other things that they give. But 2.5% is given. It can be given to the poor. It can be given to, for building a mosque uh, or helping uh, a new convert to, uh, to uh, encourage him. It is not to be given to a kafir, that is, an unbeliever at any time. The fourth thing that is uh, to be done is Ramadan. That is, I believe, the ninth month of the year. It is uh, a month of fasting, uh, and to a certain extent, it is to purify yourself. And during this period of time, during the day, that is from the time that you can tell the difference between a black and white thread at dawn, and at night, when you again cannot tell the difference between a black and white thread when the sun is setting, that time is fast time. It varies, of course. Uh, depending on where you're located. And because the Muslims use a uh, lunar calendar, it moves about 10 days each year. So after about 35, 36 years, you're rolled back to exactly where you started from uh, as far as what it is. During the period of uh, light, you are to avoid uh, food, you avoid sex, you avoid tobacco, and especially you're to avoid water, which is the most difficult for most times. Some people say you're not even supposed to swallow your saliva. It can be waived for a certain uh, time and certain individuals under certain circumstances, especially the elderly, menstruating women, pregnant women, uh, and certain other things. But if it's uh, waived, or maybe you're traveling, uh, if it's waived, then you're expected to do it at another time the following month. For example, the... uh, soccer team, football team of Iran, uh, was in the World Cup, 
happened to be in Ramadan. What, what to do, because uh, it's very hot out there, 90 minutes of running back and forth, you're going to be in real trouble if you haven't drunk for several hours. So uh, they got a dispensation, but now these men would be expected to hold Ramadan next month. During these feasts, they often will have uh, the, uh, they will have sacrifices, uh, sacrifice sheep uh, in many cases, uh, oh, I forgot to mention the fifth thing is called the Hajj. It's a trip once in a lifetime to Mecca to go, and there's a certain ceremonial thing that you do uh, following the example of Muhammad going to the Kaaba, going around the Kaaba, going to several other places, uh, and uh, standing at the uh, Mount Ararat to confess your sins and throwing stones at the devil, and these things go on. Uh, as well during the Hajj. Even you can pay someone to do the Hajj for you if uh, your health or time does not permit you to do it. But that's the goal of every Muslim is to do this at least once. And only Muslims are allowed in Mecca. During that time, uh, they sacrifice animals, they have feasts. This does not mean that they agree in the atoning sacrifice of Jesus Christ. It's a sacrifice uh, and they have this ceremonial thing where they will often sacrifice an animal, split it up and give it to different people, uh, including the poor. But that does not mean they believe in the atonement. The, however, the Muslims do believe that there is a time when God will judge every person. And the first thing that they will do is, of course, the ultimate uh, judge, judgment is by their good deeds and bad deeds. And when Allah shows mercy, he puts a little, it's like he puts his finger on the scale, adds a little to the, your good deeds. Uh, the, the tradition says also that people will be asked, what is your, uh, what is your faith? Uh, you should say Islam. Who is your prophet? You would say uh, Muhammad. Uh, and he's, they said, if you don't come up with the right answers in these things, uh, then uh, you will go to hell. Now, traditionally, the Quran, as we mentioned before, is in Arabic. Remember that we said that uh, Uthman in particular burned all the other copies, and it is in rather striking poetry. Uh, there are apparently a few grammatical errors in it, uh, although the fellow who pointed out a number of them said, open this only at my death. And so after death, they saw what he had pointed out, but he didn't want to die ahead of time uh, as a, an apostate. And so he took that precaution. It is difficult to translate pure poetry properly. And technically, uh, the true Quran is only in Arabic, but they have translated it uh, into other languages. However, they would say it's not exactly the true Quran. Uh, for example, uh, there's a fellow by the name of Pictal who has a very famous translation into English, and he translates as the meaning of the glorious Quran. Now, when I translated the Bible into Surinantongo, uh, the title was The um, Bible Naini Surinantongo, the Bible in Surinantongo. But Notice that Pictal did not say the Quran in English. 
He said the meaning of the Quran, and so that means that he's saying this isn't exactly the Quran, but this is the 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 basic true idea of what the Quran is saying in English so you can understand it. One of the other problems with the Quran is that there are many ways of looking at it. It's a somewhat enigmatic book and they have many legal experts and legal experts often differ as to exactly how they interpret things just like you find the same thing at the time of Jesus between the strict interpreters of the Old Testament and the liberal interpreters and you find people in Christianity doing the same thing in terms of their interpretation of things. However, uh, the details of uh, many aspects of life are not placed in the Quran, but from the life of Muhammad, which is especially outlined in the hadiths or the traditions that describe in tremendous detail all the details about the life of Muhammad. They tell you how he went to the bathroom. They tell you what shoe he put on first, which direction he preferred to work. They, pre they tell you what he did and didn't do. What did, he, did he dye his hair or not? Uh, did he wash or not? Did he wash after sexual relations or not? All sorts of details are detailed in the hadith or the traditions. The ones that are most reliable are the traditions under a man called al-Bukhari. And he is by far the most reliable, followed by his person uh, that trained under him, Muslim, and those are two of the six groups of hadith that are considered the most reliable. <clears throat> there were so many traditions that actually al-Bukhari discarded about 99% of the traditions as false. This does not uh, mean that they uh, accept everything in the Bible, however. Uh, the, the Jews, they say, and the Christians, the Bible used to be correct, <clears throat> but they say what happened is the Jews and Christians changed it. Well, they have to say something because the Bible and, and the Quran are different in many places, uh, although there's many similarities. Uh, but they said, but you know, where there's differences is because the Jews and Christians changed it and the Quran is to set the thing straight. Now, the Quran itself has many inconsistencies and they, uh, it'll say one thing in one place, another thing in another place, and they use what they call the law of abrogation, where uh, Allah is claimed to have said himself that if I change my mind, it's because I'm to give you something better. And so what they do is they say, it's if you say this is true, but the opposite is true, both are true, but you have to decide when you're going to apply it. For example, there is no compulsion in religion, or chop off their hands and their fingers and kill them, and uh, there's a time coming when even the trees and the rocks will cry out, there's a Jew hiding behind me, come and kill him. Well, those two things are rather dif uh, different. But the one uh, is written in Mecca, uh, there's no compulsion in religion. Well, that was in the time that he had no power, no real power in his hand. The other in the time of Medina, when he had total power and he could do what he wanted. So what does the Islamic man do? Uh, when he is not in power, he takes the softer verses. When he is in power, he takes the harder verses. We can't do that in Christianity. We need to also recognize that once uh, Muhammad got to Medina, he fused together 
the political Islam and religious Islam. And you cannot separate the two. It is impossible. And so a lot of times when Islam says this is, uh, you're hindering our religion, it's really not true. They're talking about political Islam. For example, halal food, which is allowed. Okay, you can eat halal food, that's what you're supposed to eat when it's available. But if it's not available, you can eat stuff that is not. You're supposed to pray at certain times of the day. But if you can't pray at that particular time, and if you're living among the kafir, the unbelievers, uh, then you're excused from that and you pray at a different time. So, if, in other words, it is not necessary for the uh, Muslim to stop his taxi in the middle of the road, block traffic, and, and say his prayers. The Quran allows him not to do that. But often, for political reasons, they will do that. Okay? Now, uh, once again, I want to re-emphasize that uh, the, when you look at who can go into Mecca, Muslims can go into Mecca, and they actually have signs on the, on the roads uh, going into Mecca, which is now a town of nearly a million. It says for people who are Muslims, and then there's a sign that says non-Muslims. I saw it written in Arabic and in English, which will take you where you're not going into town. Even the people of the book, that is the Dimi status Jews, Christians, and Zoroastrians are not allowed into Mecca. Can Shia and uh, Shia and uh, Sunni go in? Oh yes, they can. Once again, the Shia differed primarily by who was the righteous caliph, but they have some other differences too. The Shia uh, believe, of course, that it came from Ali, but they, and they call their ruler an imam, but they believe that there is a certain charismatic individual called Al-Mahdi. And Al-Mahdi, the 12th righteous imam, went into hiding in the 9th century, and after a holocaust, he's going to come back, and he's going to take over, and he's going to lead the Muslims to victory, kill all the Christians, all the Jews, along with the help of Isa, who they claim is, the, is their version of Jesus, and set up Islam as the rule of the entire world. The Muslims break up the world into two groups, Dar al-Salam, the house of peace, and Dar al-Harb, the house of war. The house of peace is only where Muslims dominate, and ideally their law called Shahira law is enforced. And where that is not in force, and where they're not in power, that is called Dar al-Harb. And so when we say Islam is a peaceful religion, they're really saying when everybody is Islamic, then we are at peace. But until then, we're at war. And so they're at war with the West. They are greatly disturbed by the moral decency in the West. And it was a huge humiliation uh, after the Ottoman Empire when many Muslim nations became under the influence of Europe, and in fact many accepted European ideals. Uh, one of these, of course, was Turkey that became a secular country and now is shifting back. The uh, 
I've often wondered what would have happened had there been a translation of the Bible into Arabic and people had really taken seriously trying to evangelize in the Arabian Peninsula. Nobody would have thought that these backwoods sort type of people, these nomads, were going to rise into a powerful group that now represents one in five or one in six in the world, that is, the Muslim world. Who knows what would have happened had Muhammad actually had a true Bible translated into Arabic. Uh, who knows what would have happened if there were true uh, evangelists going in to bring Christianity to them instead of a few aberrant Christians living scattered in Arabia. So you get a distorted view of Christianity. Now the Islam agrees that Jesus was born of a virgin. Quite remarkable. They agree that he was sinless. However, they deny, they agree, excuse me, that they had, had done miracles. They agree that he uh, ascended up into heaven. What they deny is they deny that he died on the cross for our sins, and they deny that uh, he rose from the dead. The death, burial, and resurrection, which is the heart of the gospel, is denied specifically by Islam. And they claim that Jesus, what they call Esau, denied that he was ever the Son of God or ever claimed to be the Son of God. They also claim that Esau, uh, who was sinless, uh, will ascend into heaven, will come back as a good Muslim, fight with the Mahdi, break all the crosses, kill all the pigs, as, uh, and uh, terms for Christians and Jews, and set up Islam as the, as the world religion. He will marry and die 40 years later and be buried at the side of Muhammad. So we've come to a uh, brief summary of uh, many of the important facts with the uh, midterm exam, and I wish you well. Father, we pray that everybody will do well in this exam, that you'll bring back those things that we need to learn. And Father, we're just still scratching the surface of what we know about Islam, but we pray that this will be a blessing. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. And a final reminder, what we cannot do in our own strength, he can do through us. So as we try to apply what we've learned today, let us yield it to him and ask him to live his life through us. And once again, this is Dr. Bob Patton from Making Much of His Missions, wishing you a blessed day. God bless you.